You open your Bibles to the book of the Psalms, Psalms 40. I'm only going to refer to Psalm 40 here to begin with in just a moment. I want to put together two words this morning for our message. I chose the word poison and the word complacency, and I want to put those together and call it the poison of complacency. Because I believe spiritually, and I believe all of you understand this, that in a walk with God, complacency is not something that God wants us to be or complacent. That really complacency has no place in the definition of zeal and striving to enter in at the narrow gate and laboring to enter into his rest. There's no room in there for complacency. And when complacency comes in, well things begin to go backwards. Things begin to decline. Our message this morning is not a fuss, but it's more of a warning to all of us because in the last days, especially in the last days, there's going to be a decline in the spirituality of most people, not everybody. There's always the few that stay above all of this. But so that all of us can understand and tighten up or whatever we need to do. If this message applies to us, I want to share it with you. Let me first of all give you a definition of the word poison, which I'm sure you all know. A substance with inherent properties which is able to destroy or mar one's health. That's what poison is. Something that damages you. Whatever form it comes in, whether it's actual poison that you eat or drink, or something that would be spiritually poison to your life. It damages your health naturally, or it could damage your health spiritually. So poison is bad. Complacency, that's not a Bible word. The word complacent or complacency is not a word you'll find in the Bible, like rapture, like many other words. But the Bible talks about complacency and refers to it as subject matter a lot. Because... The word complacency has to do with a feeling of quietness or security or something often while you're unaware of a dangerous situation in your life. In other words, we get used to situations that seem to conform to everybody else's situation. We begin to be like the norm and we sort of fit in and we're just part of the bigger picture. And we don't realize sometimes as Christians, we get our eyes off of those times in our walk with God that we become very keenly aware of the distinction between the world and God. That God's way is not the world's way. The world doesn't want any part of it. And God doesn't want any part of the world's way. And so as these ways are defined to us, we begin to see the difference between the two. And early in our life, in our walk, we made sure that we worked hard at not being like the world, because God's going to judge that. And if you're like the world, he'll judge you. So teach me thy way. Show me what the difference is and point me to the scripture so I can study and learn for myself because I want to be able to make the difference. Now, somehow through the years, we seem to lose that keenness, that specific thing between the world and this and we kind of just get involved with life and going this way and things happening in our lives and we're growing older and your life gets a little more complicated and you begin to make compromises, you begin to make excuses and that keenness gives way to, you know, to a compromise and you begin to let things you used to, whoa, I rebuke that, you kind of let that seep back into your life and one day you look around and you're not nearly as zealous as you used to be or you're not as keen spiritually as you used to be. In fact, by definition, you become somewhat complacent, somewhat satisfied with where you are and how you are. Because as you compare yourself with other people, you're not a really a bad person. But God didn't say that that's what gets you into heaven or that's what he wants. See, another definition of complacency is self-satisfaction with an existing condition or situation or something that is dangerous to you. Just complacent. Complacency is what we call sometimes just being cool. You know, just dropping back a little bit and kind of, you know, just, <laughs> you know, we're just not pressing in. 
That's not what God wants, but it happens. I've been a Christian now for 44 years and one day. I've been preaching for about most all of that. I've had chances to go many places from this side of the world, that side of the world, this side of the country to that side of the country. Been a lot of places. I've had thousands of conversations with ministers as well as friends and people that I've met and known and sat with in meetings or meals and so forth. Just this week, I was reading something that brought this message up. I began to reflect back on what this says, what this message is about. And I can see a real end-time danger coming into church. And that danger is just a simple thing called complacency. You put a frog in cold water, he feels good. You turn the heat up, and he just finally starts, it gets a little warm, gets a little more comfortable, and the next thing you know, he doesn't realize the situation that he's in, and it consumes him. And that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. Before we were complacent, and I say we editorially, I'm not accusing anybody here being complacent. If I accuse anybody, I blame myself. But if the shoe fits, it's your size, it's comfortable on your foot, then it's yours. So would you turn to Psalm 40, if you haven't already, Psalms 40 and verse 1. We'll begin here because in the beginning, this is the way it was or should have been. Again, I say should have been because I'm not convinced that everybody that attends church has been born again. I think you're good people. I think we're, we measure up to that fine in, in various ways, but I don't know that everybody's had a change of nature because here's what happens. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me, and he heard my cry, and then he brought me up out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, and what did he do? He established my goings. The effect of him establishing our goings is he put a new song in our mouth, even praise into our God. And then it said this, this is something that others around us are going to hear and see. Many shall hear it or see it and they shall fear the Lord. That is, they shall turn to the Lord because they'll see that you're the real deal. They knew you before, they see you now, and they know something's really happened to you because God has established your goings. Now, a horrible pit and miry clay, to me, is defining the world. The state that I was in personally many years ago when I was in the world, trying to do my best, trying to make my way, trying to be presentable and proper and sociable as well as good old American boy. And one day God brought me to him. I thought I was really just having a church experience. I really did, except that I was crying. And, you know, you don't do that when you're grown, I didn't think. And you're just crying, and I knelt in front of a church with a bunch of other people, and I knew I was over my head but my heart was overwhelmed with the, the sinfulness of my life. I never wanted to admit it because I always justified it and compromised. Well, I'm not as bad as some people. I mean, after all. And so I was able to accept the fact that I was no worse than anybody else. But one day when I realized how sinful I was, I wept. I couldn't help it because it was one of those divine moments which God visits you and only he can do this and opens your eyes to show you what he sees. And you see it the way he sees it, and it breaks your heart. Godly sorrow is called. It was godly sorrow because my life in the world was a horrible pit. I didn't realize it at the time. Didn't seem like it. Nobody talks like that. It was miry clay. It was like a goo that I couldn't get away from. I couldn't improve myself. Going to church never made me better. I, I just couldn't be a better person because I was mired down. I was stuck in this pit, this horrible pit in this miry clay. And I got used to it. And I just existed there and did the best I could like people do. You know, you just try to make the best of it because this is the way it's going to be. And one day God brought me out of that. And I didn't know how bad the horrible pit or the miry clay was or the kind of grip it had on us and the effect it had on our lives and our attitudes until I was brought out of it and was allowed to look back and see it. 
and saw people who, who turned away from God and had no interest in all of this. And I thought, that's where I was. They can't help themselves. Only God can help people. They don't want it because they, they're afraid of the change or they're something. Didn't want it. But he brought us out. And I cannot tell you, you know, at my young, frisky age of 28, well, that is the prime dog of your life, 28 years old. And there I was at the most important time in my life. The greatest thing that could ever happen to me in life just happened to me. I was born again. I didn't know what to do, but I felt like Christians now that we're this way, we ought to do something. We can't just say, I got saved. <laughs> How y'all doing? It's more than that. I knew that now I had been brought out of a dark place, out of a place of judgment where I was going to die, and my day of death would have been a horrible, horrible, horrible time in my life because I would perish. I've escaped that by the grace of God. He brought me to him. And then he began to do something that we're doing right now. He began to open my eyes. See, this is called establishing our goings. How many of you know that the way we were once going is not the way we should keep going? And as God brings us to him, this great challenge of our life, this is why most people don't make it. God begins to reorient us. He begins to show us his way. It's a new and living way. It's not like the way you, you don't understand this new way. You've got to learn about it. And you've got to learn about it in a Christian context. You've got to give up everything that opposes it and everything out there does. All your old buddies, all your old hangouts, all your old cool, all of that stuff is your enemy now. Because it wants to draw you back to that horrible pit and that miry clay. It wants to bring you back. Some escape this, but not many. And yet God begins to open our eyes and we begin to see things. It doesn't mean we're going to do it. But he shows us what he wants us to do because this is the way he wants us to go. And if you're willing and obedient, he will establish your goings. I begin to learn, like we're trying to learn, that there is a way that we're all supposed to live if we're Christians, a way that you can only live if you're a Christian. You can be sorry about your sins your whole life and regret and wish you hadn't, but you can never live this life unless God opens the door for you to do it. And when he does, and the door is open, and the way is offered, that doesn't mean you'll do it. You still have the will to do it. So what does he show? Well, what did we show last week? He said, the Lord has shown the old man what is good and what does he require of you? Oh, so then there is something now that I've been brought out of darkness that I'm supposed to do. There's a great theological debate here about, you know, we don't have to do anything. Well, apparently we do. There are things that are required of me. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord. Yeah, but I've never liked that. How can you be humble and be cool? Anybody. How could you ever be a humble, quiet, kind, gentle soul and be cool? You can't. And yet cool is the epitome of this world. Being cool, I, whatever your cool does. And yet God begins to turn us away from all of that turn us back to this new and living way, which you're beginning to realize is not very popular. Nobody wants this way. <laughs> oh, boy, you're walking by yourself. You're a pioneer, it seems. We saw Deuteronomy 10, 12 last week, those four things there, fear the Lord, walk in all of his ways, keep his commandments, and serve him. Remember that? Remember Deuteronomy 5, 29? We mentioned that last week. God said, oh, that there was such a heart in them. Oh, that there was such a heart in us. It doesn't mean we just have it. He said, oh, that there was such a heart in you, a motivation, a desire, that these people would fear me always, that it would be well with them, and that they would fear me always, them and their children forever. It's like God looking at people that have had their eyes open. Oh, if you would just have a heart, if you just had the courage, if you were tough enough, 
If you were spiritually durable enough and tough enough to let go of everything that God hates and God's going to judge and surrender your heart and humble your life before God under the mighty hand of God, he will make your life so much better than you could imagine. I can testify to that after 40 years in one day. I could not imagine having a life better than one I've had. Ups and downs and struggles, it's supposed to have that. That's how we find out what we believe. That's how God proves us. That's how you can locate me and me you, is by how we respond to our pressures. They're necessary. They're important. Count it all joy and so forth. But God began to establish our goings. And the more you begin to walk in this way that he gives you, the more... You begin to learn. By faith, for example, one of the first things that we learned was walking by faith. And we learned in the Bible that was no option. And the problem didn't come until somebody began to explain to me what faith is. It's not the name of a religion. It's a way of life. It's the primary way any man or woman relates to God. And there is no other way. He that comes to God must believe that he is and must believe that God rewards those who diligently seek him. You don't even know if that'll work until you do it. And when you do it, all these other forces try to draw you back. Well, who else does that? That's crazy. I never heard of such a thing. Walking out trials, you got a headache or limping or something, and people think you're crazy because you don't run to the system. And God is weaning us away from the system because he's got something better. And then one day you trust the Lord and you walk this thing out and he delivers you. You go through a dark night or two with your kids and he delivers your kids, your children. You begin to grow. And the smile is you can't wipe it off of your face. Like... The, a man named J.E. Hayes once said to us, he came up, he said, what's going on here? I mean, we've been in church together for quite a while, but one day he said, what's going on here? In a little private talk, he said, I want to know what all is going on with you all. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know what I'm talking about. What's going on with you all? We were just excited. Well, we told him, he said, well, we've been saved. We've been baptized in the Holy Ghost. Somebody told me that ghost had to do with something spooky. So for his sake, if he's watching or listening, Holy Spirit. And life has taken on a new meaning. He has made me glad. I know there's trouble brewing around somewhere in the future but I know that he's already in my future I've learned that through all these years all those tomorrows that I've dreaded coming he was already there waiting and he brought us through and his banner over us is the Solomon songs that his banner over us is love he's watching over us to keep us carefully and gently leading us through life calls our troubles and our trials and our difficulties light momentary afflictions because to him there's nothing to fix in anything we learned that somebody taught that in a church that had never heard such a thing the christian church i was in i know the presbyterian church that bonnie was in because we got married in had never heard such a thing who ever heard such a thing ever being taught in a church and yet our eyes were being opened and God was ministering to us, especially in those days when a move of God was taking place that most people didn't even recognize. It was a teaching movement. And some were being taught. Most people rejected it, but some were being taught. So we begin to learn. Like Paul said in Philippians 3, I have been apprehended of the Lord. I've been gathered in by the Lord, and he has pointed me to something he wants me to apprehend, a life of service to him. He said, now I haven't fully attained to that which I have been apprehended for, but this one thing I do, this one thing I do, 
I make me a plaque and put it on my wall and say, June 30th, 1968, that's when it started and that's all there is to it. I can sit down and go to church and sing songs and that's pretty much it for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, that ain't right. It ain't right at all. They begin to show us things, do things, live things. Paul said, this is Philippians 2, verse 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. He said, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high call of God. Church. Church. Is it possible that we could get complacent and sort of that becomes a hazy idea we once learned? The high call? A call to walk with God himself in a physical body on this earth to learn and discover who he is, to be led by him, to triumph with him, to follow him and enjoy him, to have his joy, have his peace, have his faith, have his gentleness, have his goodness, to have all of that inside of you and walk like it's real and enjoy it? A high call. Not a call to be religious or join a church and be a good member. A life. A life on a level that is called a high call of God in Christ. Paul said, that's my goal. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the more I learn about him, the more I am sure and steadfast in my walk, less likely to fall away or be bribed or bought and the more likely I am to find this pearl of great price the Bible speaks of, for which a man gives up everything to get. It's having your eyes opened. That's why in the beginning, if these things happen and they should have, this is what happened in the beginning. We were changing. We even said amen. In a church service, in a Sunday morning meeting, some even of us even dared to support the preacher and say, amen. I remember I told you when I first did, you would have thought somebody spit on the floor or something. Amen. Who said that? Who was that? That's not in the bulletin. Amen. And then we got together in our little group, in our little self, we'd be... We begin to clap our hands. It was fun. We never did it before except at ball game, but now we're doing it. And he has made me glad. This is the day. We just laughed and giggled. You think we're a bunch of kids. You would think we were like little children. <laughs> That's in the Bible. Oh, excuse me. Okay, you must be. Is that still in the Bible? We must become like little children. That's in there, isn't it? Now, we didn't do it in church too much. But we got together after church and we had our blown in our potato chips and Pepsi and we did. We even dared one time after we saw other people do it, we even dared try a little time of dancing. I'm not talking about this kind of dancing. I'm talking about dancing before the Lord's you know, in heaven. Just having a good time. Never done it. It was, it was wonderful. It just felt, felt like you're getting loosed. Like each week we were having a get loose meeting. We were just kind of, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Some of you don't. Some of you don't. I hope all of you do, but we used to, oh, church meeting was never too long. Our pastor began to preach better. He really did. And, and sometimes he would have that 30-minute spirit, and he want to quit. And we'd, amen, brother. You know, he dared to want to say, come on, brother, come on. Make it longer. My Sunday school class lasted an hour. Everybody was glad, except the other Sunday school teachers. They had to stay with their class an hour. And they didn't like it any. And one of the board meetings said, let's just vote that everybody goes to Hamilton's class. Give me a big enough room, I'll take all of them. But I knew better than to say that. It was something exciting. Persecution, oh, yeah, we cast out demons one time. We learned how to do that. And you would have thought that outer space creatures had come into the world. And of all places in the Christian church, and that the Christian church was so embarrassed. Those old folks in the, sitting in the back row, they were so embarrassed. 
the pillars of the church were beginning to crumble. They were so embarrassed that we got this clapping, shouting, woo! People that come together at night, turn on the big cross, and they come in here and pray, and I don't know what they're doing in there. I would be surprised, but, you know, they said all that stuff. That didn't stop us. Let me tell you something about the days when you're full of zeal. Everything is unpredictable. Everything is unpredictable because you never know what God is going to do. How could you have a bulletin living like this? God may not agree with the way you're going to do it. We just got together and just let the Lord lead us. Everything was so unpredictable. You didn't know who was going to prophesy. Occasionally, somebody would speak in tongues, and somebody would interpret. We were so glad. Woo! We don't know what they said. We were just glad. We prayed for each other, and we were like children, like little children that had gotten some new toys, and we were sharing them, and nobody was possessive. We really enjoyed the enthusiasm and the zeal of a newfound life, and we realized more and more we are throwing in pretty deep here because we are beginning to be different from everybody we know because we're being taught we're learning things that people don't want to learn. We're hearing things that members in churches don't want to hear. We're sitting longer to listen to those things than they want to sit, and we enjoy it. It's just something in my heart, as the song said, like a stream running free. Makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and what he's done for me, he established my goings, put a new something in my heart like a stream running free. It was so good. But that's the way it begins for me. Now, you had your own story. I know that. But this is the way it was. Now, if there has been a decline, and we ask this question in our little conversations now, what happened? How was it that this one brother here who was so giddy and so excited was one of the first ones to quit and complain and criticize the rest of us and yet was right there with us? How could one of us have been so gifted at witnessing? He could witness to the devil, I believe. And yet one day, one day he said to me, I wish I'd never heard of all this or gotten into it. I remember saying to him outside the door, I remember where I was standing. And I said, I wouldn't trade places with you for all the money in the world. And that really bothered He said, wait a minute now, you, you got no. I said, no, I heard what you said. And he's a good friend of mine. What happens? How does things like that happen? How do we go from... Zero to 80, back to zero. What kind of a scenario could we talk about? Let me just give you a few. Uh, these are ex things that I look back and I see. One is a job. Jobs. We got a better job, a more aggressive job, a, a job that pays you more and uh, requires more. And you're busy, but you're making money and... One day, your company is so impressed with you, they want you to move. They want to move you to California where they're going to increase your salary from one hundred dollars to $200,000. And they're even going to help you buy the home or furnish. They're going to do all these things because they want your talents in a bigger market so their product will be better sold and they're depending on you because they think you've got the goods. Now, here you are, a leader in the church, uh, an enthusiastic person, and yet you're about to leave for money. You call it wherever you want to. You see, I believe if God puts us somewhere, that's where we belong. I do. I'm here. He put me here. I moved from there to here because of sovereignly. I believe God led me here. I don't belong anywhere else. I may visit other places, but this is where I belong. And if I'm here, this is where I should be. That's just my personal belief that we are all placed in the body as it pleases God. 
And so here's a person who says, now this is where he begins to compromise, which leads to complacency. He begins to say, well, I can double my money. They're going to help me with the other expenses, a higher cost of living out there, but they're going to take care of that with the housing thing or whatever. And so uh, I'll just send some money back here to help them like I always have. You know what happens? I've seen this. They move away to higher ground, a greater glory, more money, more prestige. Look who I can be now. I can finally be somebody and make some real money. Ten years later down the line, they're still members of a church, but they're only a shadow, only a shadow what they once were. To clap and rejoice now would kind of embarrass them because they've drawn back so much. That's called complacency, and that decision was a poisonous decision which led to a desperate and difficult, maybe deadly situation. It happens because once you get away from where God's inspiration is brought to you, you cannot find it anywhere you go. Remember, folks say, well, there's churches everywhere. (laughs) There's a church on every corner in America. Do you really believe that God moves in each one of those churches the way he moved where he brought you to him? Do you think the enthusiasm that you learned in point A is anywhere you want to go? You won't find it hardly anywhere. Churches on every corner, church services, sophisticated services, elegant religious services, great preachers, eloquent preachers. You find that stuff anywhere. You turn on the TV and you find the greatest of the great. Do you really believe God would inspire you in that place the way he did where he saved you, where he led you? You're only kidding yourself. But see, you make that decision. Well, I mean, come on, after all, God can. I mean, hey, you can't put God in a box. You ever heard that? So off you go. Then we talk to you years later. You know very little about the Bible. You haven't grown any. You're not even interested in spiritual things. You're more about politics than you are about God. And then there's another one political. People get political. You know, the politics, part of the world out there. That's where you came out. And politics is a part of that. Can you imagine me, a Christian, professing to believe what I've taught, pushing for a Republican or a Democrat or an independent candidate, putting somebody down? I don't vote for them. They're just a... And the Bible says, speak evil of lots of men. Doesn't it say, speak evil of lots of people? I think it says, speak evil of no man. How could I be a good politician if I didn't speak evil of my opponent? If I didn't criticize, backbite, tail bear, slander my opponent, how could I get people to vote for me? What a life. That's not hard to see through. And yet... When it's there and you got a chance to be somebody looked up to, have a good effect, you find yourself willing to compromise just about anything you want to compromise. You set your convictions aside in order to do that. And then when you confront that person, I cannot believe you want to do that. Then they get combative. Why are you so legalistic? Why do you always think you people know everything and nobody else is right? What makes you think? And here it comes. You know what? That kind of stuff was in those people all along. That argumentative, combative. These folks didn't know while they were thought they were conservative how liberal they were. Because they want to justify everything they do, justify everything they said. They want to justify their circle of friends now that are not, they're not even Christian. Well, after all, this is what I got to do. It's my job. Your job. Anyway, all I'm saying is the reason a lot of people compromise is because of things like that, the job. Let me tell you one I think that's been the biggest. Our children grew up. Our children grew up. Most of you in this room are our children. You're big enough now to have babies and be daddies, and you're here. 
you grew up. Now, before you came along, we had a big time. Woo! We whooped and hollered. We danced. We shouted. We laid hands on people. Hallelujah! That's the way you, you got to holler or it won't work. <laughs> oh, and we went to meetings, and the car just bounced up and down, everybody clapping, and somebody paused in a conversation, somebody else jumped in. You think they're all on speed or something. They were all just yapping and carrying on. Excuse me. It was so much fun. I know fun's not in the Bible, but this was fun. And when our kids started coming, they were little. Hush, sit down. <laughs> Lay down, they pile a bunch of coats on them, stick them under something, and we went on eating our bologna and having a big time, sitting up all night long talking, going to school the next day like this here. Oh, getting home at 2 o'clock and getting up at 6. And, oh, God, four hours, I'm going to die. Bags. Our children began to grow up. They thought it was kind of funny at first. They'd watch us run a little bit. You know, we had a big time. We didn't care. We ran. Shouted and carried on, preached way too long for an hour and 13 minutes every week. And they sang too long. Song leader didn't have any semblance of time. And all the people didn't seem to mind. <laughs> we just sang as long as they wanted to hit that guitar. Our kids began to grow up. They just began to grow up, and we realized as they were starting to grow up and ask questions that, they weren't sharing our convictions. And one day through a sermon or something, we were beginning to be aware that us daddies weren't really spending very much quality time with our kids explaining to them what we believe. This is the reason we do this. We just told them, sit down and be quiet. We weren't doing a very good job being fathers. We'd hear the teaching on fatherhood, and amen, amen, but we just kind of set aside, well, I'm not right now, I don't have time, or I'm too busy. Our kids grew up in the same church that we were excited about, but they weren't excited. Now, when they got to be teenagers, <clears throat> big enough to ask questions face-to-face, -face, about as big as you are now, we realized they were embarrassed. They couldn't bring their friends to our church because of the embarrassment of who might do something. They would be embarrassed. Somebody just jumped up and spoke in tongues. And then your friend would say, what is that? Oh, nothing. You see, our kids didn't share our convictions. They saw them. They watched them. I remember a father had a child going to leave home once and told the child, you know you're getting out from under the covering of your home. I think he said it like this, you need to get you some health insurance if you're going to leave because you have watched your entire life how God has protected us, kept us, this family. We haven't been sick and you, since you've been born into this world. We've been well, and you know it. I know that. Okay, but you're out from under that now. You don't want that. You don't want this shoved down your throat. I wish we could have. They didn't want that shoved down their throat. They want to find out for themselves. They don't share our convictions. We didn't do much teaching to them. We just told them, be still, shut up, listen. We didn't take much quality time to sit down and talk to our sons or our daughters. We didn't, as we walked by the way, sit. We didn't talk to our kids about Jesus. We just sort of said, well, you'll learn. And we felt like if we took them to church, maybe the church could do the parenting job. Or maybe if we had a youth director that we could hire, somebody wanted to do that once. If we could hire a youth director, then our church could survive because the person said, if we don't get a youth director, this church is going to die. This church is going to die because we can't hire a parent. According to their note, these children are little projects. They're types of the members of the church, and we as parents, fathers especially, these are our people. If we don't teach them who will, the school will. Their nasty boyfriends and girlfriends and buddies and pals will. They'll let them look at some stuff, get them all aroused and tore up and go to their house and watch trash so they can get that unclean spirit working in them where they can go out and have casual sex 
and then talk about making love. They have no clue what love is. They're not committed to anybody except their own stinking pleasure. That's what they're committed to in this life. That's what the world promotes. Be all that you can be. It's the world's way. It's this miry clay to keep you stuck in it. And we sat around, watched this, and didn't take any quality time. We editorially, we as a church, not you folks. We just sat down and talked to our kids about this. We didn't give them the quality time making them know I'm concerned. I want to talk to you about drugs. I want to talk to you about sex. I want to talk to you about growing up, being responsible, and making us proud. We didn't do that. Some people did. Don't say nobody did. Somebody did. And our kids kind of grew up and learned the ways of the world. And then they brought the ways of the world into the church and got bored and embarrassed with what we do here. And you know what happened? They began to train their parents. We quit shouting. We quit doing a lot of things. We quit this dancing. Not everybody. We quit some of the things that we used to take pride and enjoyment in doing. We, we just kind of quit. We kind of backed off. We quit singing so loudly because it embarrassed our children. They sat there with their arms folded in approval that you're not like you once were, and they changed us. I'm saying us editorially, and not everybody, of course. They changed us. And as they were, we look around, and a lot of parents are like them now. Oh, we used to have a standard, you know, the music we listen to, we won't listen to this trashy worldly music. This old country get in bed with me music. And rock and roll, you, it, I don't know what that is. I guess you get in bed with anything. Listen to their radio. If they have a car, parents, pick their keys, gag them, tie them to the door. Because they might not give you their keys. And go out there and turn on their radio and each punch each station and see what your children listen to. what they listen to. You think they would listen to this? Oh, they will because you're here and they're here and, you know, they feel good about being here, but if you knock on their door, ain't nobody home. Nobody's there. It's dead. It's empty. They've been sitting here the whole life, and I'm saying here, I mean here at a, in a church. And look at their dress. Oh, mamas, back in those days, they learned about dress and modesty right away. Women got rid of their pants. They quit wearing them. And they began to wear longer dresses because the short dresses, pants are better than that. Many skirts, when we got saved, there was many skirts. Now they're mega minis. But things changed. Modesty became an issue. Mothers and daddies doing jobs. We begin to see what we ought to do. Establishing our goings. We've never done it this way before. Our kids grew up and didn't want to wear those old granny gowns. You know, the uniform of the day was a denim jumper, you know. <laughs> they didn't want to wear denim jumpers. I'd be the laughing stock of the whole school if I went to school in a denim jumper. Can you imagine? Here I am, a Cute little, I mean, I'm as cute as I can be. Just, I mean, I'm a doll. And I mean, I've got all the curves to go with it. I'm really somebody something. You want me to put a denim jumper on all this? You want me to hang a sack on this body? Well, come on. You want me to just make my face natural and normal? Mm-mm. You know what we parents did? Honey, don't do that. Don't do that. Oh. And they did it anyway. And we started getting grandbabies the wrong way. Not kids that were wanted. They weren't wanted. They were born out of wedlock. Nobody wanted these kids. We prayed for them later, of course, and changed that. And a whole new way of living came in. Abortion, 
homosexuality. You talk about a sick society. Sick. Don't y'all say amen. We're living in a sick society. And our kids are not really opposed to it like maybe you are. You know, after all, live and let live. Where'd you get that liberal thinking? Well, I'm just saying one of the things that brought complacency into the church was that. And those granny dresses we were talking about, those granny gowns, they became shorts. They became short shorts. Or they became tight jeans. The kind of jeans you jump out of the top bunk and hope you hit it right to get into the bottom of those jeans. And, you know, you have to get your friend to come over and help you to pull that buckle over and buckle them things up so they oh, got them on. Because once you got them on, you look good. As far as I'm concerned, you buy a mirror, you take them off. But anyway, and now, listen to me, all of you, things change. We calmed down. We cooled off. We peaked out. We hit a place as far as we went, and then all these other forces, challenges with our children and with the world system and its ways changed us. And now those of us who used to say amen to certain things are offended when we talk about it. You talk about, oh, no man, anything, you get a note and a bad look. You talk about the permanency of marriage. 20 years ago, amen, but amen. Get out of debt, amen. Love your neighbor, amen. 20, 30 years later, get out of debt. Well, I don't know why you're saying that. Come on, get off of that. What happened to the amen? Permacy of marriage. Well, I don't know about that. Because one of your kids got remarried or what? What happened? Did you? What happened? What happened to that original message? Was it false? Somebody said on one of those gossip books in the Internet, they're all blaming Hobart Freeman for this. If what you heard 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago was false, then you should have gotten away from it. But when you embrace it because you read it in the Bible, you, somebody pointed it out to you and showed it to you, now you turn around and you say it's false in order to justify your reoriented way of thinking. You backed off. We call it backsliding. We've gone backwards not realizing the Christian life is going uphill without breaks. It's only up. And now we get offended. You say things we said 20 years ago, we get offended. I say we, not talking of you, I'm talking about the bigger picture. See, you're all off the hook. You get offended. Why is he talking about that? And you're guilty. And I think, why would you, in violation of God's word, try to justify your violation with an attitude? Why don't you just repent? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Surrender your will to God and say, you're right and I'm wrong. Let him restore unto you the joy of his salvation. You haven't gone so far he can't fix you. I know while I'm standing here today, I do not believe, and I'm talking about us in this room, I do not believe our children share our original convictions when we started here. Now, those same convictions have been taught for the last 30 years. As far as I know, I haven't changed my message. But something has changed in the people. Not just our children. They came into this the way they are. But those of us who were here originally, I don't mean all of us because only four or five of us left. But in those days, it's kind of become complacent and quiet. And you know what? The church became presentable and predictable. It's no longer an unpredictable, what's God going to do? We come in now without any regard, without thinking, well, God will do something today. I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt it. We begin to 
learned the routine. Our expectation for this morning, our meeting, is just comfort and happiness. Make me comfortable and make me happy. I'm not good at either one of those, but he said, make me comfortable, make me happy. We just become complacent. We don't want to change anymore. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. You really don't want to go back and change. I mean, I remember, Brother Hamilton, the years when we were talked about so bad in this town. You know why you were talked about? Because of your convictions. Yeah, but we messed up. Everybody's messed up somewhere. I'm not going to give up on God because I messed up or you messed up. We made a mistake. We get hammered in the paper. What? So what? Doesn't mean that's the way it's going to be or stay. It's just the way it happened at that time. You know, if God's going to test us that way, then so be it. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Church of Laodicea. And to the church of the Laodiceans, write. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. You were either turned on or turned off. Verse 16, so then because thou art, what? Lukewarm, tepid. You ever drink tepid coffee? And that's not a brand, that's a degree of temperature. Do you ever drink any warm coffee? Surely nobody here likes warm coffee. Surely nobody likes warm coffee. In my ugliness, one time I got a cup of coffee at one of these drive throughs and took a drink, took a sip of it, and it was tepid. You can go look in the dictionary and see what that means. It was tepid, warm and fuzzy, and murky and yucky and ugly. I took a drink of warm coffee and I just poured it out right there in front of all of them. That was ornery. That really was. That's a form of protest, and I repented of it. But that was showing how I don't like warm coffee. What about a warm life? You got it right there in your book, right there. What about a life that's not really on fire for God, like we were trying to show a while ago, but it's not really quit either? We're kind of there, but we're, you know, we just, we're mature now. We have matured. We don't have to do all of that. Woo! We can now just go, woo! Because we're mature now. We don't have to clap our head like this here. We can just do like this now. We're mature. We've, we're refined. I mean, you know, we used to be 30s. Now we're all 40s and hitting 50s. Come on. That's the way the devil chokes you brings you down to a place called complacency and it's mired in poison and it'll kill you. It takes away the very life that you have. I'll say it again. He said, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know how hard some of you have tried to do it. Maybe it's just religious works. Maybe it's just church stuff. Whatever it was. He says, I know that you're not hot. You're not on fire, and you haven't quit. You're not dead. You're not indifferent. You still think about things every now and then, but you're not what God wants. You know what he called them? Lukewarm. He said you're lukewarm. You know what God does with lukewarm? Now, I poured mine out. What does he do? Don't look. You might see it. Have you all got a Bible? Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Verse 16, I know you've seen this, and I know you're already there. Was he in that verse by saying, because you're not cold, you're not hot, but you're lukewarm, God says this is what he will do. What is it? Spew you out. Now, see, I poured mine out, but he had a mouthful of us. He spit us out. What a disgusting display of displeasure. Whoo! God said, Warm Christians, warm Christianity, they're not dead, but they're really not alive. They might as well be dead because I don't want them. 
or however you spit. Now look at the next verse. He mentions five descriptions of a complacent church that's been poisoned by the world. He said, you're miserable. That's in verse 7. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. Now, what would the world say about you if you were like that? They'd feel sorry for you. Take up a collection. Have a jar and a store somewhere to put some money in for you. Wanted to help you. Poor things. These people had probably the biggest building in town. They had money in the bank. They didn't need anything. Didn't have to vote on anything. They had done well. <laughs> Look at us. Whoa, ho, ho. Jesus said, you are miserable. In his eyes, you're wretched. You're blind. You're poor. And you're naked. You're uncovered. Now, I believe... That's what happens when complacency begins to have its way. And yet, no doubt, many of the people in the church just say, I'll tell you what, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to reign over five cities. You can't even manage your own life. You can't even reign in your own house. You can't even subdue the demonic stuff in your own home. How are you going to reign and rule with Christ in some other dimension? In the millennium, how are you going to reign? You can't even reign now. You're not even trying. You're letting stuff go. God isn't going to have people reign with him like that. His people are going to tighten up. we got a job to do. He's establishing our going. Part of it is, is to put things in right place and manage and oversee and overcome and not budge. We look at our homes. We look at our lives. We look at our children. All me and you. We think, man, where did I mess up? I did. There were critical times in my life when an inspiring speech could have changed the course of a person's life. And if we're not sensitive to God, then we won't be used of God to turn that life. He'll do it some other way, some other time. If we're going to reign and rule with Christ, then you better tighten up now. There's a race to be run. There's a victory to be won. Amen. So we get together. What are we going to do? The church is a mess. What are we going to do about our church? Let, what can we do? Let, can we get a, let's get us a new, let's get us a young, vibrant preacher. Let's get somebody in here that's got some pizzazz with pepperoni and mushrooms on it. Let's get us an inspiring speaker. And ha let's have an old-fashioned revival this summer, and then maybe we can... You know, liven things up again. Let's get us a youth director, and maybe we can get everybody's attention with our, and maybe we can just come on now. Folks, we are the church. We are the church. You ain't going to change nothing by building something new. You're not going to change anything by hiring a new one or getting you a new one or bringing you a new one in. They ain't going to change anything because until we personally, our hearts get changed, all we're going to do like Israel is just keep running around the mountain. We're never going to change. We're going to try to buy somebody that will change us. We're going to buy us a building, and maybe that building will change us. Or we're going to buy us an experience, and maybe we'll get back to where we were. Without any effort, it isn't going to work like that. God called his church to follow Jesus, to serve him, to walk with him. We're called to press on, press in, to overcome, to love each other, be our brother's keeper. That's the church. That's what makes it the way it ought to be. It's me plus you connected to God bringing forth his power. It's me and you. We can meet in a damp, leaky, mouse-occasionally-infested basement. Because I know some wouldn't last long when I ran across the floor. God can meet us there. Now, don't get me wrong. I am A number one plus for a new building, or at least a better one. We had a rain last week, and I went back here in the back room, and that window 
that they boxed in right there. There was so much water coming through there, the floor was sopping wet back there. I thought, we got to get something better than this. We'll keep meeting. God will keep blessing us. It'll just keep stinking a little bit more, but we'll make it. But no matter if we had a shiny new one or an old stinky one, we're going to meet and we're going to teach and we're going to learn and give everybody an opportunity to get his personal, her personal life in order. And your contribution to the church is that which every joint supplies. This is what maketh the increase of the body. Ephesians 4. It's you and me. Not complacent and indifferent, waiting for something to happen, but to awake, awake out of our sleep, to awaken to the great need in our life. You know, the church is going to be sleeping the last days. And we got to awake, thou that sleepest. Look at where you are. Look at what you're allowing in your life. Come on, tighten up. This is not what God wants you to do. Look, God gave us his instructions. We've made up our own. And we're dying. Spiritually with our eyes open, having meetings and trying real hard, dying. Not everybody. But it can just drift slowly back into that religious system. They're on every corner. The religious system. The established, organized, democratic form of church government system. It will never change. It will never be any different than it is. And all the fighting in our community about Christians comes from these people. Just a system has ruined us. Our kids are so used to it, they'll be just like the system. When we came out of the Christian church, 44 years ago, uh, it was a new adventure. We couldn't stay there and grow. And it was necessary to move. I came to Shelbyville. Where are we? It's just Kentucky. Shelbyville, Kentucky. This is where I came. Folks, I'm going to close with this. God forbid, like he said in Romans 11, that he would give us the spirit of slumber. That in the last days, Jesus said, iniquity shall abound, self-interest, self-love, iniquity shall abound, and the love of many shall wax cold. We're religious. We're in church. I know your works. I know what you're doing, Jesus said. I know how hard, you know, you think you're trying, but you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind. You're poor and you're naked. If we see that, we have to say, God, I don't want to be like that. Could you say that? I don't want to be like that. Could you? I mean, the folks I'm talking to right now in this room, could you say, I don't want to be poor, wretched, blind, miserable, and naked? I don't want you to describe me like that. You know what that means in eternity? I'm lukewarm. Guess what? It ain't going to work for me. All these years. All these years of hearing and attending and to come to the place where Jesus said, you're lukewarm. How can you reign and rule with me? You're not even trying. You've given up trying. You gave in to the pressures. And then he says, come on. Strengthen what remains. Didn't he say that in the church of Revelation? Chevyville, electronic world, strengthen what remains. Get yourself by the throat, grab yourself somewhere, set yourself down and ask yourself the question, how serious are you as a Christian? How much importance are you attaching to your Christian life? Is it a social thing, you feel good about it, or is it a life? Now, if you're not doing good, do you want to do good? Then the decision is yours, and the whole church will improve because of it.
God help us. But we are more than conquerors through Christ. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless to the hearts of these, your people, your words. I pray that they will not believe it because I said it, but that you will witness to their hearts the truth of what we said. We're aware of a great sacrifice that was made for the likes of us to come out of darkness, to have our goings established, to be the kind of people you describe in your word. And oh, how easy it is, Lord, to get our eyes off Jesus. Let us refocus now to what he did so that we may not be weak and faint and weary in our lives. Meet us at this moment, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.